Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you tell us that your word is profitable and that it is profitable to us to teach us, to rebuke us, to correct us, and to train us in righteousness. And so we pray this morning that it would be useful in those ways. We recognize that that can only happen as we come in faith and as you send your spirit to be our teacher. So we pray that those two things would be true. We would come in the posture of faith that everything that you tell us is true. That we can trust it and follow it. And we pray also that your spirit would be given so that we would believe it more and more and seek to live it out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Our scripture passage this morning is Ezra chapter 10. This is the last chapter in the book, which is on page 396 and 397 of the Pew Bible. This is the last in our series on the book of Ezra, although, as I said at the very beginning, it's not really the end of the story. And as you'll see, it's not much of an ending. It ends in mass divorce. But if you remember, this is just volume one of two volumes because Ezra and Nehemiah originally were one book together separated about the fourth century into two different books. And so you need to go on really and read the book of Nehemiah as well. But we've been sort of asking the question as we've gone through this little book is what should we expect as the people of God when God builds and renews His church, because after all, that's what's been taking place is God has brought His people back from exile into the promised land and has rebuilding and renewing them spiritually all over again. Now last week, one of the things that we saw was what happens when sin is exposed. And we asked the question, how should the church deal with sin? when it's exposed and the first thing in chapter 9 that we saw is that confession ought to take place real repentance a, a sense of brokenness over our sin because primarily we have damaged our fellowship with the Lord we have grieved our Savior as Paul says in the book of Philippians and so confession begins to take place but chapter 10 we see what happens after that confession which really gets to the a central issue in the book of Ezra and really a central issue in the gospel of grace and that is that there ought to be transformation there ought to be a sense in which things that were wrong are made right again because we ought to be living holy and distinct lives in the world but not of the world as Paul says we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount as we have read through it in our calls to renewal and what we see there is Jesus really being radically countercultural, where he upholds values like poverty of spirit mourning over our sin hungering and thirsting for righteousness those are not values of the culture but they ought to be values of God's people and we ought to be living out that holiness as he says being perfect as our heavenly father is perfect so that as Paul would say in Philippians 2, we would be like lights shining in a dark world so that the glory of God would be made manifest in this world primarily because His people are living out His glory. And so when we come to this particular passage here, we see 
really what begins to take place when God reforms and spiritually renews his people. Let me begin reading in verse 1. I'll read through verse 17. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God, and we have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the command of our God. And let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take oath that they would do as had been said. So they took the oath. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehohanan, the son of Eliashib, where he spent the night, neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble in Jerusalem. And that if anyone did not come within three days by order of the officials and the elders, uh, and the elders, all his property should be forfeited, and he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month, on the twelfth day of the month, and all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, you have broken faith and married foreign women, and so increase the guilt of Israel. Now then, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do His will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so. We must do as you have said. But the people are many, and it is a time of heavy rain. We cannot stand in the open. Nor is this task for one day or for two, for we have greatly transgressed in this matter. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times, and with them the elders and judges of every city, until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Jaziel, the son of Tikvah, opposed this, and Meshulam, and Shebathai, the Levites, supported them. Then the returned exiles did so. Ezra the priest selected men, heads of fathers' houses, according to their fathers' houses, each of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to examine the matter. And by the first day of the first month, they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. A few years back, I sat down for lunch with a friend of mine and a homeless man that we had gotten to know whose name was Willie. And Willie basically told us his life's story. And by the time he got to the end of it, he said, almost in astonishment to himself, how did I get to this point in life? How did I get here to where I'm homeless? 
And of course, the answer is not that there was one particular choice that did it, but rather a long series of choices that put him into this position where he is now homeless and had been at least at one time addicted to drugs. But rather, there was this slow creep of foolish and sinful choices that put him in this particular situation. That's after all what landed the people of God into exile, right? It was the slow decline into further and further sin. And what we find here is just after they have been brought back, a couple of generations later, they're already beginning to go down the same path that the people of God went down that took them off into exile by beginning to intermarry with foreign women. And last week we looked at why in which that was such a grievous sin to the Lord because it really took them away from the spiritual heartbeat of Israel, which is God Himself. So when they began to intermarry with foreign women, they found themselves being taken away into false worship and all types of idolatry. And this is the beginning of that creeping sin grabs hold of God's people and begins to choke out the Lord Jesus. It begins with small compromises, doesn't it? I'll just take a little bit. No one will really notice. It's just one small lie. I'll spend a little bit extra more than I have on these clothes. And do you see, when we begin to make choices like that, we begin to go down the road of Israel. and This creep of sin begins to come up upon us. And before long, we find ourselves in patterns of sin. There's an old saying that says, sow an action and reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a, li- reap a lifestyle. Sow a lifestyle and you reap a destiny. And it's the very thing that happened in Israel. And it's the very thing that can happen among God's people as well if we're not careful. If you do the calculations looking at the list of people who sinned in this particular way in verses 18 through the end of the chapter, what you find really is that less than 1% of the people had intermarried with foreign women. Less than 1%. Now why is that such a big deal? It's because of the creep of sin. Because if we begin to compromise here, well then that will lead to further compromises down the road. And it will just keep going and keep going and keep going. But God's work is to make us holy through and through. It's to make us like Him so that there are no compromises. So that there is a full lifestyle of holiness for the people of God. It's what He wants for us. And because we've been redeemed by the costly life of Jesus, He has now consecrated us to live a life of holiness for him, And so what we need to do is really to put aside every hindrance to living a life of holiness to the Lord, no matter what it costs. No matter what it costs. What that means is three things from this particular chapter. One, that we come to see the sinfulness of our sin. That we come to see the sinfulness of our sin. If you look in verses 1 and 2, that's really where the people had ended up. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, children gathered to him out of Israel 
for the people wept bitterly. Last week we saw how Ezra began to mourn over this sin and now the the people of God are gathering around him mourning and weeping bitterly and confessing in verse 2, we have broken faith with our God and we have intermarried foreign women from the peoples of the land. So they begin to recognize their sin for what it is and see it as costly, the utter ugliness of sin, that this intermarriage with foreign women will lead them to destruction if they are not careful. And in fact, it's interesting that archaeology has uncovered a particular settlement in Israel at this particular time where Jewish people intermarried with the Canaanite people of the land and it led them off into worship of pagan gods. This is the very thing that will happen. And God's people are recognizing it. And they're turning from it. In fact, one of the things I think they probably recognize, if we were to turn to the book of Malachi that was written during this time, Malachi prophesied saying that you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because He no longer regards the offerings or accepts them with favor from your hands. He's recognizing that God doesn't receive their sacrifices anymore. And he says, now why does He not do that? Because the Lord has was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. What is most likely taking place here is that these men, now that they have settled into the promised land once again as they've looked at their Israelite wives and they've said, there's something about you that I don't like. And they've turned from them, been faithless to them, and they've intermarried with other women. And that particular sin is an ugly sin to the Lord. He hates divorce. And so here what we see is the people of God beginning to recognize we have abandoned our wives, we have committed terrible sins, and now we're being led off into idolatry and into pagan worship by these foreign women. Sin has great consequences to it. Sometimes there are often unforeseen consequences to our sin. And it's only after the fact that we get into a particular situation we begin to realize just how horrible it really is. Sometimes we actually even think that we're willing to pay the costs of our sin. I've read a number of articles recently about cyberbullying. You've probably seen this sort of thing in the news where Teenagers pick on other teenagers, whether it's on Facebook or some other avenue of the internet. They post pictures of compromising situations that embarrass and humiliate to the point where there have been a number of suicides by teenagers because they have been bullied so openly in front of the watching world. In fact, there have been adults who have been arrested because they have bullied their children's friends. Because the friend received a position on the cheerleading squad that their daughter didn't receive. That led to a suicide. Unintended consequences. Sometimes we think we'll pay the cost of our sin so that we can enjoy it. And ultimately it leads us so far into destruction that we realize we cannot pay the cost. Just like these people who are given to cyberbullying and their arrests that are made and lives ruin over it 
Sometimes the tendency is simply to think that our sin is not that bad. It was the rich young ruler's issue, wasn't it? All these commandments I've kept from my youth. I haven't sinned in any gross particular way. And it's an effort not to allow ourselves to see the ugliness of our sin. And what God wants us to do is to do what the people of God did here, is to weep bitterly for it, to recognize how utterly destructive it is, how corrosive it is, what costs there are to our sin, so that we begin to see just how damaging it is to other people. Probably one of the greatest ways in which we damage the people around us the most is with the use of our speech. Harsh words that are spoken. Loud words that are spoken. Embarrassing words. Cutting words. Sometimes just the lack of words. Our silence is the way in which we seek to hurt and damage other people. And we can begin to see the hurt on their faces. But it's not just damaging to others, it's damaging to our own souls and even damaging to our fellowship with God. So it begins to distort and deform us into people who look not like the Lord Jesus, but actually look like Satan himself. And every time we say, my sin is not that bad, and we keep a hold of it with a tight grip, ultimately we're bringing damage and destruction upon ourselves and all the people around us. Sometimes we can't see that for ourselves and we need God to reveal it to us. And it's actually the thing that has taken place here. This is a work of God and God alone. One of the things you notice is that Ezra doesn't force the people to do anything. In fact, in verse 3 we read, Therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord, that's Ezra, and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. Now, now when did Ezra counsel them? Remember, as soon as he found out about it, he's been, been weeping. When did he counsel them? Well, maybe it was in his prayer. Back in chapter 9, verses 11 through 15, there's this prayer. Recognize the, the impurity of the people of God and the foolish decisions that they've made. So Ezra hasn't forced them to do anything, but they've come to recognize it on their own. That this sin of mine is ugly. It is detestable to the Lord. And it will ultimately damage and deform me and all the people around me. So they begin to sense the horror of it all on their own. Now that's different than Nehemiah. If you read in Nehemiah, he handles this situation completely differently. In chapter 13, where this sin actually comes up once again. Nehemiah visits these people who have sinned against the Lord by intermarrying. And it says that he pulls out their hair and he beats them. He curses them. Now that's some kind of pastoral visit, isn't it? How would you like one of your shepherding elders to attend your home and find out some of your sins and give you a once-over and pull your hair out and curse you in front of your family. But Ezra is a little bit more subdued than that. And he simply allows the Word of God to do its work. And that means that we need to put ourselves in a position where the Word of God can do its work. And we need to pray that it would. We need to pray that God would begin to expose our sins so that we can see it for what it is. And when we do and we begin to repent over it and weep bitterly for it, 
there is such encouragement and grace in the Lord to forgive and to restore. Isn't that what they hoped for? But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Paul speaks of the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. And he says godly sorrow does not lead to regret. Why? Why do we not regret being sorrowful for our sin and, and looking at the ugliness of it and confessing it? Because there's mercy and grace in the Lord Jesus. And so he tells us here that we ought to look upon it for what it is. But secondly, not only to see the ugliness of sin, but we ought to commit to a life of complete holiness. I mentioned the Beatitudes earlier. The Beatitudes begin with our need before God, the sense of poverty of spirit, that spiritually we are bankrupt before the Lord, that we mourn over our sin, that we become meek people who don't press our sinful agenda. And what's the very next one? Then we begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness. You see, the people who recognize the ugliness and the destructive power of their sin are those people who begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And that's what takes place here. They begin to commit, commit their life to complete holiness. Verse 3 says, Let us make a covenant with our God to put away these wives and their children according to the Word of God. Let us commit ourselves to a complete holiness before God. It's a choice. And it's a choice that they alone can make. They can't be forced to do it. You remember in Joshua chapter 24, after the people have entered into the land, and Joshua says, now put away your foreign idols. And choose you this day whom you will serve. Whether it's the false gods beyond the river in Egypt, or whether it's the Lord Himself. There must be a commitment to living a life holiness for the Lord isn't that what our membership vows say do you promise in humble reliance upon the guidance of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes the followers of Christ that's whole souled whole hearted devotion think of it this way if you were to go to the YMCA or to some uh gym or facility around here and you were to meet with a personal trainer and maybe he was to ask you what are your goals for your workout program and you scan the gym and you saw someone who looked just like you want to look and you say I want to look just like that you know what the trainer would say he would say well that's going to require more than a few sit-ups more than running around the track a couple of times more than pushing a few weights. That's going to require your whole devotion. And friends, if we look at the Lord Jesus and say, now that's who I want to be. I want to look like that. Then it requires our whole devotion to God. And it's not just our individual whole soul, whole heart devotion, but it's actually the devotion of the whole people that's expected expected here i mentioned this list of people who have offended the lord in this way now imagine if we published a list of people of who had offended the lord this week or this month in the next month's newsletter or imagine that if your name was written for all of eternity in the word of god as a transgressor 
That's exactly what's taken place here. But there are 110 offenders out of tens of thousands. So why include them? Because He wants everybody to be holy. He wants all of His people to be holy. That's God's no person left behind program. No child left behind. No child of God left behind. Because I want all my people to look like my son. The Lord Jesus. So it's a whole souled, whole church body commitment to the holiness of God. But I'll tell you this, it will never actually happen unless we delight in the holy character of God. If we don't delight in the holy character of God, we will not commit ourselves to seeking the holy character of God. You've probably noticed that there are certain trees that in the fall they do not drop their leaves, but they hold these dead leaves on until the spring comes. And it's not until the new, new growth begins to push those old leaves off that they actually fall to the ground. It's way in which the gospel works, isn't it? Theologians call it the expulsive power of the grace of the gospel. That God's grace begins to come into our lives and expel all the foreign impurity so that we now are able to live for God and primarily one of the things that ought to be at work within our hearts is a delight in the holiness of God. We look at the world and we watch the news and we see so many things that just make us uh, unhappy with the way things are. We look at the world and we look at our rulers and we say, how could they be this way? How could they lie to us this way? How could people do that to the people that they love? And then we turn and look at the Lord Jesus and we say, look how beautiful He is. How righteous how holy, how loving, how gracious and merciful, how kind, how generous He is. And friends, it's only when we begin to delight in His character that we say, now that's who I want to be. And when that begins to take place, we say, I want to commit, I want to covenant with my God that I will endeavor no matter what it takes to seek holiness like He is holy. Well, finally, not only do we want to see our sin and commit to a life of holiness, but finally we want to separate ourselves from sin. Ezra says in verse 10, you have broken faith and married foreign women and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now then, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do His will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. It's a call to separation. It's one thing to see the ugliness of our sin. It's one thing to say internally, I want to live for the glory of God. I want to live a life of holiness. It's a whole other thing to actually do it. Much like James says, speaking of the man who looks in the mirror and then goes away and forgets what he looks like. He's not a doer of the Word. Friends, we want to be doers of the Word so that when we commit to living a life of holiness, we actually do it. And we look at the response of the people here 
what they say is, it is so, we must do as you have said. Interestingly, they go on to say now, but wait a minute, your timeline is, is not workable, Ezra. Here we are standing out in the cold and the rain at this particular time would be the equivalent of standing out in the cold and the rain in December. And they say, Ezra, we cannot accomplish this task in one day out here in the cold. And so we need to have a different forum. And interestingly, they, uh, they do what all Presbyterians do. They form a committee. Verse 16, the Ezra the priest selected men, heads of the fathers' houses, each of them designated by name. And on the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to examine the matter. And by the first day of the first month, they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. Ezra was wise. He was patient. But he did not allow the circumstances to deter the mission of seeking the holiness of God. And we ought not let our circumstances be excuses for us so that we do not seek the holiness of God. Now one of the things that is very clear about this particular passage is that there are great costs to following God. We're told in verse 19 they pledged themselves to put away their wives. And in verse 44 we're told all these had married foreign women and some of the women had even born children. There are great costs to our sin. It's very damaging and that ought to sober us, but there are also great costs to following God, aren't there? There are great costs to saying, I'm going to forsake the life of sin that I've endeavored to live and now I'm going to live for God. Because what must take place is God must begin to unravel all the things, all the sinful choices that we've made, all the foolish choices that we've made, and oftentimes that comes at a great cost. Now there's a moral dilemma here in some respects. What should be done? What we find out that they do is they divorce all of these women and leave these women and their children without a husband and without a father. And that's a very difficult thing to reconcile. One of the things that we could probably used to reconcile is the fact that these were illegal marriages to begin with and God did not sanction them, did not recognize them. But regardless, it is painful. It is painful what is to take place here. And what it reveals to us is the cost that we must pay when the sin that we have chosen to commit begins to be redeemed by God. And He begins to unravel all the knots that we have tied together in our lives because of our sinful and foolish choices. When I was working in college ministry, I heard from a fellow campus minister of a student who came to him one day. And this student said, I must confess something to you and I'm not sure what to do about it. He said, before I entered into college, I worked for a company. And while I was working for that company, I embezzled some money. And it has been weighing on my conscience ever since. And I don't know what to do about it. And the campus minister was a little bit thrown by it and wasn't actually sure how to advise the young man. And they had further conversations about it. And eventually this student came to the point where he said, you know, I, I think I need to go to the authorities and confess what I've done. 
And his parents got involved and he realized what kind of cost that he is going to have to pay if he does that. His family was hurt. He might have to not only repay what he had stolen, but pay further costs on top of that. There might even be jail time. I never found out what exactly happened to him, but I often wondered. But it's really a picture of what begins to take place when God takes those knots that we've tied and begins to unravel them. Sometimes there are consequences to pay for those things. And you might think, well, if that's what God does when He begins to work His grace in my life, well then maybe I, I will have nothing to do with it. I'll continue to hide my sin. I'll begin, continue to pretend like it's not there. And friends, ultimately that's an even more foolish decision because it leads to destruction, doesn't it? Maybe in this life, maybe the destruction of your conscience, Maybe the destruction of all types of things in this earthly life, but it can lead to ultimately the destruction of your life in the world to come. And what God wants us to see is just how gracious He is in matters like this. That He is like a father with a young child. And He looks at that child and He recognizes that there's a limp there. And He says, now come over to me and let me look at your foot and child shows the foot and there's a large thorn in the bottom of the foot and the father says, no, I need to take that out. And the child says, no, that's going to be too painful and begins to cry and runs away. And The father says, now, if you're going to be healed, I need to take that out. And God the Father is in many ways just like that. He says, now I may have to wound you, but I mean to heal you. And that's what He's doing as He's working His redeeming grace into our lives. So that though there are costs to pay, ultimately what ends up doing is leading to the healing of our souls and the healing of our lives and even the healing of the lives of the people around us. So that we're not those people who use our speech or whatever it might be to damage the people that we love so much. It's God's work of grace. And only His grace can begin to do that. And it happens. It happens when we commit ourselves to separating from sin. Let me ask you this. And I ask myself this as well. What will it take for you today and the rest of this week to separate yourself from the sin that you commit so frequently. What will it take? After all, didn't they have a plan? There was a plan in place. We will separate ourselves from these foreign women. What will it take for you this week, by the grace of God, to separate yourself? There are beginnings of plans in the Scriptures. Flee youthful passions, Paul tells Timothy. That's a plan. Do not store up treasures on earth, but treasures in heaven. That's the beginning of a plan. Throw away your idols, Joshua says, and serve the Lord. There's another plan. Seek wisdom that is above rather than earthly wisdom. There's another beginning of a plan. 
Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouth, but only what is good for building up. Give no opportunity to the devil. What's your, gonna, your plan going to be? What's my plan going to be? We need to have one. Because it's the work of God in us. So that He would make us holy. Shining like lights in a darkened world. Close with this. I had a dream last night that I walked into the sanctuary and there were still construction supplies around. There were no pews. Things looked as if it was still in the middle of the restoration project. And I thought, oh my word, what's taking place here? And people were coming in the doors and I had to say, now wait a minute, we can't meet in here today. We're going back over to Kirkside. And maybe for some of you who work so hard on this building, you would probably have a heart attack if you walked in one Sunday and things look like that all over again. If things were like that still today, most likely this church would be a little bit frustrated. Things aren't being done. There's work that's left undone. Maybe there's corners that are being cut. Maybe, maybe the workmen aren't doing things the way they should be doing things. And we're wondering, what's the hold up? And in a way, God looks at the building of His church and He says, now wait a minute. What's the hold up? God's not just in this to relocate people from Babylon to the promised land again. But He's in this to build a righteous kingdom of priests for Himself. And He says, let's get to it. Let us confess our sins. Let us receive mercy and grace. And let us separate our sins so that we can live like the people of God. A city on a hill. A beacon to the rest of this community and this world. For Jesus' sake. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we do turn to You. We have learned a number of things from this little book of Ezra. And we pray that these things would be at work within our own congregation in ever-increasing ways so that the work that You are doing here would be powerful and effective for strengthening this church so that we would become more and more like the Lord Jesus, saying, now that's who I want to be, and making every choice that we can to endeavor to be that way. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.